This is the Farm and Garden Show with your hosts, Sarah Gresky and Michael Foley. Today we have in the studio with us Jamie Chevalier, founder of Quail Seeds in Willets, and a gardener with wide experience, as we will hear. We're going to be talking about the fall and winter garden, from putting the garden to bed to keeping it going. But first we want to ask Jamie to tell us something about how she got into growing food and into providing seeds for the rest of us. So a little bit about your history with Bountiful Gardens and what is it about seeds, those little nuggets of procreation that uh, have attracted you? <laughs> well, it's a long story. And um, there's, a, there's a photo of me when I was four years old with this incredibly joyful expression on my face with a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a trout in the other. And that ended up being the story of my life. I had a career as a commercial fisherman uh, before I worked in seeds. But while we were commercial fishing in Alaska, we lived in a remote homestead um, that you could only get to by boat or float plane. And so the garden was really, really important. And as far away as we were from civilization, we had the whole earth catalog. And in those pre-internet days, that connected me with seed issues back in 1980 when they first started the privatization of seeds with the Plant Variety Protection Act and, um, and then plant patenting. And so I was uh, actually following those um, intellectual property issues around seed um, from the beginning. Wow. And uh, then when we came down to California, we were still fishing in the summer, and I needed a winter job, and so I went to, you know, seed companies. Um, their big season is January till April. So um, working in a seed company was a perfect fit, and uh, so I learned about the mechanics of it by working at Bountiful Garden Seeds and Willets. Tell us about, before we go on with the seeds, tell us about gardening in Alaska, because that seems like a challenge. It was. It was, um, it was not what people think of as real Alaska with the you know, endless night in the winter and the ice and snow and everything. I was in the, the Alaska panhandle in the rainforest, so we got 150 inches of rain a year. Wow. And uh, there were times when we actually got four feet of rain in the month of October. Wow. <laughs> so um, the big issue was that the soil was so cold and soggy. And then air temperatures, too. I mean, a normal uh, summer day would be like in the high 50s, 60s, you know, uh -huh. and... Um, and overcast. So um, I got really well acquainted with um, Asian greens. Oh, yeah. And um, all the lettuces and the kales and chards and cabbages and uh, peas. And also with the role of day because uh, the combination of cool temperatures and um, those long summer days even if we'd plant our peas in April, sometimes we wouldn't start to harvest them until August. Uh -huh. wow. So <laughs> there were it, there were a lot of things that are, it, oh, and beets, which are normally a biennial 
um, would be would bolt for us often because of the day length. So there were a lot of things that most gardeners think of as pretty theoretical or like advanced gardening things that that smacked me in the face like early on. <laughs> so coming down here it was so exciting to be able to grow all those things that make fruits like tomatoes and peppers and corn and everything because I had all of my gardening had been about leaves. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So, um, and then you got connected with Bountiful Gardens, which maybe not everybody knows about Bountiful Gardens, but... Yeah, I had, um, Bountiful Gardens was the, um, the seed company arm of Ecology Action, which most people probably know better through John Jevons' How to Grow More Vegetables uh, book and the, um, the biointensive method of gardening. Um, which, and I had, I had, again, been conversant with that, and that had kind of shaped my gardening um, method and everything from the time I first started gardening in the 80s. Um, and so when I got to Willits, I was amazed to find that this nonprofit that I had remembered as being, you know, in Palo Alto <laughs> was in, had, in fact, moved to Willits. And uh, I got to know them and just started packing seeds in envelopes as a as a winter job and then um, started going to the uh, uh, organic seed alliance conferences and they really have provide they provide so much education on seed growing and that's really where I I learned that segment of it uh-huh. and I, I know that um, you are well respected in those circles so I don't know about your your contributions to the organic seed and the open pollinated seed business, but could you talk about that a little bit? Well, there's these are really challenging and and um, polarizing times in the seed world with uh, um, because I think the public knows a lot about the GMO issue, but I think. Very few people, even most farmers, don't realize what's been going on with um, privatization of seed, both in the consolidation of seed sources and, you know, a huge percentage of the seed industry now is owned by two multinationals, uh, one of which is Monsanto and the other one is based in China. Um, and so that is a concern in and of itself, but also since the 1980s, um, the courts have allowed uh, the patenting of seeds, um, which is kind of a terrifying thought that you can patent life forms and, in fact, especially patent life forms that are the future of our food. And so, yeah, I've been um, involved along with a lot of other people in fighting that not by trying to outlaw it because the courts have decided that that's what you can do, but by um, establishing um, an alternate path, both by uh, keeping heirloom seeds available and by um, carrying and, and growing and popularizing um, new open pollinated varieties, which are basically the heirlooms of the future through the... Um, Open Source Seed Initiative, which is a really exciting counter movement to um, to the privatization of seeds. Yeah. So, give us an example 
Jamie, of what uh, an heirloom seed or an open pollinated seed might be and how uh, in our gardens as small farmers and gardeners here in Mendocino County, uh, how uh, the seeds that we see around us that we have in our gardens, um, how are they related or not related to this whole privatization move that you're talking about? Well, it's surprising um, that there are a lot of, what do I want to say here? Um, well, first off, what is a hybrid seed? A hybrid is a cross between two varieties. And that's, that's a natural thing that people have been doing to, to, to breed new varieties forever since prehistory. But modern F1 hybrids, um, varieties, which will say F1 on the seed packet, um, are crosses between two secret parent lines that only that seed company owns. And um, the only way that you can get that variety is by buying it from the seed company because um, it's a first-generation cross and uh, very uniform, very vigorous, in that first generation, the seeds that you buy will will make a very good usable product. But if then you save the seeds from the plant that you grew, it won't be particularly usable. It'll be all over the map and very unpredictable and sometimes even sterile. So an open pollinated variety is one where you can save the seeds. Simply put, it's a stable variety that, um, like those that people have been um, growing and feeding themselves with for thousands of years. And an heirloom variety is one that has been grown in the past that's over 50 years old. Um, increasingly in the nursery trade, when you go to, the, to buy plants, they'll say, or even in the seed trade with some companies, they'll say, heirloom seeds, when actually what they mean is that they're open-pollinated, that they're new varieties, but they're open-pollinated varieties. Mm -hmm. So increasingly, those are kind of being used as synonyms in the, in the public arena. But open-pollination just means that you can have a whole population of that plant, and it will cross all by its, its pollinate all by itself with the help of the bees, and you can save the seeds and get a plant just like what you planted. Yeah, so how did you then, how did you come to found Quail Seeds, your own little seed company? Well, I had had it in mind for a long time that I would like to have land and, you know, grow seeds. And we were able to finally buy a little parcel of land. And um, I started thinking about what I would like to do with herbs and native seeds and so on. And then, unexpectedly, uh, Ecology Action decided to close uh, Bountiful Gardens. And so that hurried my vision a little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it, we started in uh, January of, or February, I guess, of 2018. Yeah, good. I just want to remind people that you're listening to the Farm and Garden Show on KZYX, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, 91.5, and 88.1 FM. And we're speaking with 
This is um, Michael Foley and Sarah Grusky speaking with Jamie Chevalier, founder of Quail Seeds. And um, the intent of the show was to talk about the fall and winter garden. And maybe we should move on to that because I know, Jamie, you've prepared to talk about that. So why don't, why don't we go on to that? <laughs> so tell us what is in your fall and winter garden right now or what's left over from your summer garden that survived. Well, um, I have uh, a nice big bed of, of root crops, carrots, carrots, parsnips, and beets that are just, that did really well over the summer. And uh, that that long, cool spring we had, and then I've got some beds that get summer shade, and now they're looking really vibrant still. Um, I have, I think that California can learn a lot from Italy as far as the winter garden goes. So I've got a lot of endives and um this year, I have a beautiful crop of uh, bulbing fennel in the in the garden, uh-huh. and I've been surprised how well that's done with the frost. Um, I have green onions, I have leaf celery, I have Brussels sprouts, I have turnip greens, I have collards, I have spinach, and I have a lot of things still in flower to feed the pollinators, which I'm really excited about. Um, Tell us what's in flower. <laughs> well, I have some big bushy um, arugula plants. That's the annual arugula. And I have um, a lot of perennial arugula that self-sows all around my garden and produces tremendous amounts of flowers. And all summer they've been humming with bees. And now they're still uh, feeding things like tachnid flies that hmm. um, are predators, predator insects that eat pests, and they still need nectar and pollen to uh, for quick snacks. So, <laughs> so I've been uh, excited about the arugula and cilantro. I have chervil that's flowering in the garden, which is a cool season leafy herb, somewhat like parsley, but with a mild, almost fennel kind of flavor. Um, I have alyssum, which hosts a, um, a specific predator on thrips, so I really like to have that in my garden because thrips are a real problem in Mendocino County. Hmm. Uh, I have anise hyssop, calendula, phacelia, borage, and mullein hall still flowering. Wow, wow. And you get frost there. You're on, on the EO, um, but up. So. Yeah, I'm at uh, 18... Hundred feet and um, quite a bit east of Willits, so we're a little more continental climate. We're a little uh, hotter in summer and cooler in winter. Uh huh. Yeah. So, how much of of what's left in the garden is protected under cover? How much is out in the open? The only thing that's protected under cover right now is uh, peppers. I plant oh. my peppers in tubs and then move them into the greenhouse. Uh huh. And your peppers, how, how long into the season of, of winter uh, are you going to take them? Or will well, they take themselves? I typically, guess? the the cayenne types, I, I the sweet peppers, I haven't tried to do that with. But the cayenne types um, are more kind of hot weather lovers, and they usually 
I don't think they're going to go more than another couple of weeks probably. Uh-huh. Um, but I have a pepper um, that I've been carrying at quail seeds and that I really, really recommend to Mendocino County growers. It's um, called Criolla Silla. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's uh, a little uh, yellow hot pepper. It's about as hot as a jalapeno, but it has more of the flavor profile of a habanero. And uh, it's from the Andes. So it germinates better in cool weather. It uh, makes really fast growth. It can take shade. And it overwinters in my greenhouse. Amazing. So another question about your fall and winter garden that might be of interest to our listeners is cover crops. I know since I'm on your mailing list that uh, you're carrying a whole line of cover crops. What um, what are you doing uh, about cover crops this season? And what do you recommend to our listeners that uh, might be hardy cover crops, maybe cover crops that are edible or for livestock, but also putting good things back into the soil during the season. Yeah. With our uh, heavy rains in the winter, it's really important to protect the soil. And so cover crops are doubly important, I think, in in our climate where all of our rain comes in such um, violent bursts. Cover crops can be challenging because you need to plant them before you're really ready to give up on a lot of your summer stuff so you so want yeah so you want to kind of scratch it into the ground maybe around your tomatoes or whatever is still going in September and um sometimes that takes and sometimes it doesn't because cover crop seeds do need good soil to seed contact and frankly they're really attractive to birds. They're larger seeds, a lot of them are grains. So I've had, just like most gardeners, I've had mixed results with the planting. You know, sometimes, <laughs> last year I planted a, a mix of mustard and wheat, and the um, and all I got was mustard because apparently the birds like wheat seeds a whole lot better than mustard seeds. <laughs> Um, and I've also uh, tried broadcasting and hoping that it would that clover seed would sift down through the mulch, and it didn't. <laughs> so the clover didn't didn't come up. But if I pull the mulch aside, put down the the vetch or clover seed, scratch it in a little bit, and then mulch over it, um, that seems to work well. And that's that's the thing that I find that has been the most successful for me is to mulch over the cover crop seeds so that you don't have to disturb the soil as much and um, and you can keep it moist and hidden from birds. <laughs> yeah, so you find that that's, that's adequate um, mulch to keep birds away because I, I've also tried that technique and <laughs> not found it entirely <laughs> adequate and then uh, moved to actually putting remay over the mulch uh, um, after I cover crop and yeah. uh, having more success uh, with the grain seeds, especially, yeah. as you say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and definitely straw with um, long, I want to say long staple, but it's not like cotton <laughs> with long stems, is is a little harder for the birds to untangle to to yeah. get actually get at the soil. So oh, something yeah. like that is 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 uh, maybe a little 
easier for covering cover crops. I, I really like rice straw as a mulch in the garden. Um, it, it has a lot of silica, which is a real contribution to the soil, and it, it doesn't have, well, any rice seeds that are in there that sprout are going to winter kill and not become a problem. And I haven't noticed it having other weed seeds, which is that's why they grow rice in paddies is to kill the weeds. Yeah. Um, so I, and it, it seems to be a little longer than the wheat straw, which is pretty short and chopped up. So it seems to discourage the birds a little better too. So here's another question um, coming from uh, my repeated cover crop failures, both failures in terms of, you know, the transition from your, mm-hmm. it's not ready, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in October to pull out your, summer crops many times. And then we get this great, well, recently we've had these sort of, you know, bimodal winters where we get heavy uh, fall, and then we have this, this uh, I don't know, summer in the middle of winter in January, <laughs> and then we get some later spring rains, but there's this middle period. And so I've been wondering, so I've kind of been the reality has been oftentimes that cover crops are more like December and January by the time I, you know, I'll, I'll maybe mulch and, you know, throw a few things on the soil, but I don't actually get the seeds in until January or December. Have you, what have you been, and, and then I find that the, there's usually colder nights, but warmer days uh, can help too, but there's a frost issue. Anyway, so this long convoluted question is, what about later cover crops? What about if you just don't get to it till December or January? Well, that's a good question because, and I, I'm chronically late with planting everything because the the the, 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 the dark underside of having a seed company is that right when you should be planting, everybody else wants to be planting too, and so you're really busy making your living, and then about the time that people finally stop making orders and you have a little bit of time to get out and plant, it's it's too late. So I've developed a lot of strategies around that. I like, well, first off, I'll say that that clover and vetch, which are actually favorite cover crops of mine, I mean, they're, they make beautiful flowers, they, they bloom, and they're, you know, chickens love them. I mean, you know, it's just, they're, they're pretty great to have around. They look good. They don't look all weedy. And vetch does smother weeds really well. But those have to be planted really early. They really need to germinate in warm soil. So in the real world, the cover crops that have become real staples for me are mostly peas and uh, bell beans and rye. Mm-hmm. And rye has a lovely, lovely root structure. Yes, there are miles and mi- literally miles and miles and miles of, I think, 80 miles, up to 80 miles per plant of roots. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Truly yeah. stunning. Yeah, yeah. But no, how long does it have to be in there to get 80 miles of roots? <laughs> well, I'm not sure, but they, they, I believe that in the first month it goes down a couple feet. Uh-huh. So, yeah, yeah wow. rye makes a really dense mat. And that's why um, cover crop mixes are really great because – um, all the the grasses like rye and wheat make um, such a, a strong root structure that really holds the soil, and then also those roots then compost in place after you've germinated them. And then the legumes have you know add nitrogen to the soil, 
And then I like to also add a um, something that's tap-rooted if you're in clay soil, which I'm not. I'm on sand, so I don't have to worry about that part. But typically, like it, when you drive through the, uh, past the vineyards, you'll see that their cover crop mix includes um, a fodder radish or a mustard because those have really deep roots that uh-huh. then, you know, pull up minerals and provide a way for water to get into the soil. Yeah. You you used the word terminated, and I'm reading a book you recommended to me, Jesse Frost's, um, what is the soil? Living Soil Handbook. Living, Living Soil Handbook. And um, he's careful when talking about cover crops to talk about termination. That is, how do you... How do you kill them off, and how do you make the bed available for the next, you know, for your spring sowing? Do you want to talk about that just a moment? Because you talked about real dense roots with rye, and you would like to use clover. I've found clover impossible to get rid of. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You've got to be sure and pick an annual clover. And Uh I don't think that's something that most seed companies are transparent about at Uh all. Uh Uh-huh. So, yeah, that's you, you, yeah, perennials. You don't want to put perennial cover crops into your annual beds. And I, I actually, this next year, will be carrying a perennial mix for, um, for orchards and pastures and paths and stuff like that, as well as the annual cover crops for your growing beds. Uh-huh. But, uh, termination, yeah, that's, that's an issue because, and I think that's why cover crops haven't been adopted very much by home gardeners, is that the way that farmers have traditionally done it is to plow them under. Yeah. And the no-till movement um, with market farmers has given um, has done a lot of research on this: how to kill your cover crop when you want to use that bed in the spring without tillage, without a tractor, without a plow. And for home gardeners, without a rototiller, which really destroys soil structure. So we can learn a tremendous amount from the research that these uh, market farmers uh, in the no-till world have done over the past 10 years. And the big ones, uh, the big methods now that are really useful for home gardeners are cutting and mulching, tarping, and crimping. And of the three, I think the the easiest is tarping, for sure. Mm-hmm. The cutting and mulching works really well too, but you've got, your timing is a little more important than there. Uh, tarping you can do at any stage of the plant's life cycle. But how long do you need to keep that tarp on? Well, you know, it depends on temp- uh, temperature. The warmer it is, the faster the plants die. And you've got to cut them first, right? You need to cut them first so that, or, well, cut them or tamp them down first. You can go through the garden with a board and just, you know, move it along bit by bit and stomp the plant down. Mm-hmm. Or you can cut uh, cut them. And I guess the size of your garden and what tools you have and whether you want to bend over or not. Yeah, <laughs> or <right>. the, <laughs> but you can, um, there's a lot of people are using now a board with a rope on each end. And so you can just kind of lift it without bending over and and advance it down the bed and then just put your weight on it to bend the plant down. What you want is is soil contact. So as long as the plant is bent down and not just making a tent out of your tarp, 
That's uh-huh. that's the important thing. Uh-huh. The earthworms need to get at it. Yeah. yeah. I want to remind people that you are listening to the Farm and Garden Show on KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. And we're speaking with Jamie Chevalier, owner of Quail Seeds and a Master Gardener. And we've been talking about putting, putting the garden to bed for the winter, but how about continuing? What sorts of things can be in the ground in the, the Persephone <laughs> <laughs> weeks, the, um, the, the time when we have less than 10 hours of sunlight all day and, and most things go dormant? What do, we, what do we do? Do we keep things in the ground at all? Oh yeah, I I'm a I depend on my winter garden a lot. Actually, more than my summer garden as far as food goes because ah. I'm growing seed often in the summer garden. I am a big champion of turnip greens. Huh. And the the reason is that kale is probably more hardy in absolute terms as far as, um, you know, it'll go down below zero if you live in New England and that sort of thing. But kale doesn't grow very well. It needs warm soil to sprout in. It doesn't grow very fast compared to a lot of other crops, especially turnips. It it just survives during the winter. It doesn't actually usually make new growth. So you have to you know, by October, you have to have as much kale as you're going to have all winter, oh, which yeah. I never planted early enough to do. <laughs> I do have perennial collards, however, which provide tons of greens over the winter. But the thing about turnips is that you need some kind of energy to fuel growth through the winter and spring. And with most plants, that's the sun. But with turnips, They've got all the carbs in that root to provide that energy. And so they actually make new growth over the winter, and they're about the only thing I can think of in the garden that does. Hmm. And then in the spring, they they make these flower shoots that are tender and like little broccolini. And in fact, that's what broccolini is. In, in, in Italy, they have all of these different crops that are called Broccoli, when you buy them in the store, but actually what they are is a turnip that's gone to flower. <laughs> and so you um, you harvest them when they're looking like little broccolis before the fl- they've stretched up and the flowers have opened. And as long as you keep picking, you keep getting more. So I depend on, on the turnip greens all winter as my kind of go-to uh-huh. green uh-huh. in the garden. But when did you get those turnips in so they have enough root structure to hold the the carbs and keep producing you know you can plant them as late as september but Mm. you'll get they'll definitely make a bigger root if they're planted a lot earlier Mm -hmm. um but the great thing about them is that if you once have them in your garden you can keep having them because they self-sow like crazy if you let them go to flower which i always do because um the bees and early pollinators love them so much Uh uh-huh uh-huh so we um you mentioned asian greens um mm-hmm. in the context of trying to trying to maintain a garden in alaska <laughs> um asian asian greens 
like bok choy and Chinese cabbage, but especially bok choy and tatsoi, are among the only things I've found that grow during those dark months. They don't grow a lot, but they keep on chugging. They're not just dormant. The other thing are, are those um, little salad turnips, hakurai and Tokyo, mm-hmm. Tokyo Market. Mm-hmm. Do, do you rely on those things? Do you have other recommendations besides the two I mentioned? Yeah, Maizuna is a big favorite for me. It's uh-huh. a um, it's more upright than tatsoi, so it doesn't get so muddy, and it it's uh, really mild, so it's a really good salad green. And Frank Morton crossed Maizuna and tatsoi, and uh, the result is uh, called Maispuna mm-hmm. <laughs> Salad Select. And so he bred it for mild salad use during the winter. It's it's hardier than lettuce. And I actually have quite a bit of uh, lettuce in the garden, too, still. There's some lettuce. Lettuce is by nature a spring plant. It's in the wild. It's a spring plant. Mm-hmm. It likes to sprout in cold soil, and then it loses cold hardiness as it matures. But um, over the centuries, um, people have bred winter lettuces, and so if you plant the right varieties, you can have fine lettuce that, that's pretty darn hardy. I mean, down into probably 20 degrees. Bronze Arrow is probably, the I think, the, oh. the hardiest that I know of. It was bred hmm. right here in Willits. Well, I should say reselected right here in Willits. It was bred in the 1930s, but um, has been kind of transformed by local gardeners. So I carry that local strain, super cold hardy, uh, winter density. Strangely enough, the um, summer crisp lettuces yeah. um, are among the most hardy. So um, I've noticed that too. Yeah, yeah they're from continental Europe, and so they've they've been bred for cold hardiness. How about the batapias? Oh yes, that is basically the same as summer crisp. Oh, okay. I wondered about that. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So there's there's so many names for that type of lettuce, and it's kind of a European um, standard lettuce that hasn't gained a lot of visibility in the U.S. Um, so Batavian, um, Summer Crisp. Um, basically, they have a crisp midrib, like and make a head like an iceberg, but then frill out like a leaf lettuce. Uh-huh. Um, at the tips of the leaves, so they make kind of a loose, open, um, wedge-shaped head, um, and they're more bolt-resistant than other lettuces to summer heat and also really cold-resistant, which is true of a lot of vegetables, actually. Sometimes um, sometimes just they just have an all-around strong constitution. Uh-huh. Let's flip to seeds a little bit um, as our time <laughs> moves on here. I am curious. Yeah, well, one of the things that is exciting to me about what you do, Jamie, amongst mm. many others, is that you've integrated um, local food and local medicine. Um, and I, I feel like that's so important as an herbalist and just for building sustainable uh, gardening here in, in our community. Um, tell us what uh, what seeds are making it through uh, as we move into November and colder months. Uh, what seeds are you harvesting now? Um, what seeds uh, um, 
hold up uh, in damp uh, and cold without mold, or what seeds mature uh, uh, mature at this time of year? Tell us what, what your seed garden looks like. Boy, let's see. Well, um, the one that comes to mind is vervain. Um, and um, I'm a I'm a real lover of um, plants that kind of that self sow and find their own spot and and just keep going on their own. Um, and it's it's kind of part of my focus on the whole landscape. So I it's I really it's important to me to not just have a food garden, but to have um, all of those different permacultural zones, you know, the, the, the intensively gardened food garden part and the, the, the flowers and the medicines and, um, and then progressively as you get less and less cultivated, also the things that don't need irrigation, the, the native um, plants and the um, trees and shrubs and uh, hedgerows which is another thing that I'm going to be putting a lot of emphasis on in the coming year as hedgerow mixes for um, self-sustaining, self-sowing, um, pollinator attractants and, and herbs and um, things. So um, I think right now I, yeah, the vervain is the main one where I think the seeds are probably still still maturing uh, I'm seeing lemon balm um, most of those mint family herbs um, chickweed uh, alyssum a lot of a lot of the flowering plants are mm -hmm. making seeds continually calendula um, mm -hmm. yeah mostly mostly the flowers and herbs at this point um, the borage, I'm yeah. seeing borage flowers. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But I'm still collecting uh, elecampane and echinacea, um, uh, sunflower seeds, whatever the the birds have left us at this <laughs> point. They're still out there a little bit. Um, mullen, mullen, yes. Uh, um, Grindelia, um, yeah. But I did have a question in that regard, because like everything, uh, I get to it late. Um, uh, bringing in seeds after a couple of rains, as we are uh, at right now, um, is there a concern about mold issues and viability? If you've just left those seeds, uh, chase tree or vitex is another one that tends to mature late. Um, so uh, would you be concerned about the viability um, of any of those seeds that have been kind of sitting out there in dried flower form? Um, I would be, yeah, the, both because of mold issues and um, damp does uh, shorten the life of seeds and storage. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, seeds that are just maturing now tend to have lower weight and lower viability just from less heat. Because, again, heat is energy, and uh, so there's less energy for the plant to store. Um, so, uh, for example, I'm hoping to 
to uh, harvest some more peppers uh, for seed from my greenhouse, but it was such a long, cool spring. It took so long to take off that they're they're taking a while to mature, and mm -hmm. I I just um, we'll see when they're germination tested how well they they sprout with with maturing so late in the cold conditions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that that is an issue. It is. I, I've worried about that. Yeah. Um, some of our peppers are half green still. Should I pick them? Are the seeds, you know, worth saving at this point, or should? Yeah. <laughs> if they mature, if they're around room ripened, as I started saying, <laughs> <laughs> um, are the seeds going to be mature? The questions like that. Yeah, um, it's it's pretty iffy. Basically, you can always try. Uh huh. Um. And you know, if they, the, the, I mean, with peppers, you know, the seeds are embedded in that um, placental structure in the center of the the pepper, and so they actually can suck quite a bit of nutrition and out of the pepper mm. as it ripens indoors. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, it's not ideal. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to remind people that you're listening to the Farm and Garden Show. This is Michael Foley and my co-host, Sarah Grusky, and we're talking with Jamie Chevalier, founder of uh, Quail Seeds and Master Gardener, about the fall and winter garden, um, and about seed saving as well. Um, I'd uh, like to put in a plug for California heirlooms. Yeah, do so. I... Um, uh, the the heirloom seed movement uh, kind of got brought to prominence nationally, but the Seed Savers Exchange was just in the Midwest, and so they've done an amazing job of preserving all these Amish varieties and Appalachian varieties and um, so on. And the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange has done an amazing job with the collards and corns and okras of the Southeast. Um, but I don't think that people on the West Coast know about our equivalent, which was uh, the Abundant Life Seed Foundation, uh -huh. which um, was an amazing organization. And unfortunately, their huge seed collection uh, was lost in a fire. Oh, my goodness. And at that point, they had to decide whether they were going to you know, try and rebuild that or do something else, um, and what they did was morph into the Organic Seed Alliance. Uh, and uh, so many of the uh, people who have been just so important in um, modern fighting GMOs, fighting um, seed patenting, and just breeding amazing varieties and and or advancing organic gardening um came from from that uh, abundant life seed foundation people like frank morton um were growers for them and uh so many of their varieties have survived in nooks and crannies of people's farms and gardens and seed catalogs and i've been trying to bring those together and carry a lot of those and also to just ferret out 
varieties, um, like the King City pink bean that I remember from growing up in California. I remember eating in restaurants and um, just to make, you know, and I finally was able to find some beans that I were being sold for food that I was able to plant and get some plants and get a seed crop and, and get those going. But it's, it's a lot harder, definitely, to find uh, California heirlooms um, in the seed trade. And, you know, our climate is so different from everywhere else in the U.S. that mm -hmm. I just feel like that's a really important aspect of what we do. Mm -hmm. Tell us what else is in that um, category of California heirlooms that we can get from you, that we can uh, celebrate and, and just uh, be more informed about? Well, uh, there's one that I am particularly tickled with. It's um, it's a, uh, a mustard, an Asian green um, called Green and Snow, and it's actually the most hardy of the mustards. It's... Uh, in New England, it's actually proven even hardier than kale. It's um, so that's green and snow is a really good name, huh. <laughs> and it's from China. Um, but the line of it that I have is not from China. It's um, from San Francisco, and it's uh, been grown in the backyards of San Francisco uh, for decades. Wow. And I was given it by a neighbor who is Chinese and lives in San Francisco and um, gifted me with these wonderful seeds. Uh-huh. Wow. Hmm. I, I know another favorite of yours is local Mill Creek red onions. Oh, yes. You want to tell that story? <laughs> sure. The um, uh, Back when I was working at Bountiful Gardens, I used to... Um, go to the farmer's market every week and just ask vendors what variety it was that they were selling of whatever it was they were they had on the table. And so I was um, I was taken with these beautiful red onions that um, and uh, at Phil Cool's table and asked him what they were, and he said, oh, well, those were, that's the onion that was bred by uh, the Turi family in uh, Talmadge, and they uh, had a nursery, and they bred this this onion, but unfortunately, they've, both the husband and wife have passed away, and this is the last of those onions, hmm. and I don't think, I can't get seed anymore. So I bought the whole box, <laughs> put it in my car, and um, drove straight down to um, Golden Rule Garden and um, buttonholed Ellen Bartholomew and said, Ellen, um, can you adopt these? Because <laughs> <laughs> at the time I was, I didn't, I have a garden. I was just um, gardening in containers in my porch. And Ellen, with the to the greatness of her heart and her tremendous skills as a gardener and farmer. She uh, has been growing them now and stewarding them for many years, and they just get bigger and better and more bolt-resistant every year. She does a great job of selecting those, stewarding that seed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great onion. And speaking of onions, um, I'm getting ready to plant some now. I don't know if that's wise, but I... <laughs> 
think they're ready, but um, when do you plant onions for the greatest? <laughs> you, and I know there's a, there's a light issue as well. And, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. They're daily length sensitive and, um, and they're biennials. So you want to plant them really early so that, they're, so that when the days get long and they start to bulb up, because they're going to bulb up in June whether you um, plant them in February or May. They're still going to start bulbing up in June. Uh -huh. So um, you want to plant them in February or January so that they are nice and big. The, the onion actually isn't a root. It's a, it's a swollen base of the leaves. So when you look at each leaf that you see on the onion plant will be a ring of the onion. Oh. So you want a nice, big, bushy onion plant. Um, and the way to do that is to plant early. But if you plant too early and the, um, the, the plant will think that it's already had a year of growth and is now going through the winter and it's time to flower. So it, it's always tricky. But, um, uh -huh. yeah, I think you can plant them now. They certainly know that it's winter now. Yeah, uh -huh. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good. Um, we are coming near the end of the hour, um, but we had on our list of questions a question about compost because we rely on compost a lot, and we try to make it year-round, and I don't know if you have any advice. Um, um, and Sarah, I think, wants to talk a little bit about her compost system, but um, what about compost, compost making in the winter? Well, I think the key, that, or the, the thing that I would really like to get out there is how, how important leaves are. Ah, yeah. I, I see people burning or bagging up their leaves, and it just makes my heart <laughs> ache. Um, because leaves have the perfect balance of nutrients. And they have more minerals than other sources because the tree roots go so deep. So they are the perfect mulch, the perfect compost ingredient. And if you make a separate compost out of leaves, they have um, an added plus of being the perfect uh, seed starting mix because trees have gibberellic uh, acid which uh, induces seed germination. Uh -huh. So it actually will, your seeds will germinate better than a, a leaf-based compost. Any particular leaves? Or any leaves to stay away from. Yes, there's a leaf to stay away from by walnut, yeah. um, any kind of walnut leaves. Um, if you have a walnut tree in your yard and you see some of your plants struggling, it Probably isn't your fault, <laughs> but uh, spruces as well, uh -huh. um, and probably pines have um, and eucalyptus have um, <laughs> compounds in the bay laurel. Yeah, in the whole plant that um, prevents the germination of other plants. It's a natural herbicide that um, that they use to suppress competition. Yeah. 
But oak leaves in particular or just all kinds of leaves? Yeah, oak leaves, fruit tree leaves are really great. Um, I, if you, if you leave fruit tree leaves where they fall on, on flower beds or perennial beds or whatever, you probably won't need to add any other fertilizer. Hmm. Really great. Uh huh. Our goats love them too, so it's competition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have we have the same problem with cover crops. You know, the, the, there's competition between the uh, compost pile and the goats. <laughs> <laughs> right, and the other the other thing that um, is is a really new and exciting addition to soil health is ramiel wood. Um, yeah. That's that's wood that's uh, from the branches. Um, two inches and smaller, and it has a higher proportion of uh, growing tissue as opposed to actual wood, and Mm -hmm. so it actually has more nitrogen in it, and um, researchers in uh, Canada have found that it makes a really great um, soil builder as long as you only add it on top. You can't incorporate it into the soil. You have to leave it in a layer on top, but if you put it down now, if you put down wood chips uh, from the branches now, um, in spring, it will have been uh, broken down by fungi, which can grow in cold weather and um, be a really great source of food for soil microorganisms. And yeah, I just um, I just ordered the wood chip handbook from Chelsea Green, which is new, I think. And I don't know if you've seen it, but we have. We have enormous piles of wood chips, thanks to PG&E's murder, <laughs> murder of the trees. Um, that's been the one, one advantage for gardeners, is all those wood chips. But learning all those things we can do with them seemed suddenly really important. Right, right. And um, I got that book as soon as it was available. And um, one thing that I uh, found was... Um, Really exciting was the uh, the way that um, uh, gardeners in England have pioneered this system of heating your greenhouse and uh, and uh, warming your um, seedlings seedling flats for your spring vegetables um, with uh, piles of wood chips that you build a uh, Use pallets to make a, a, a to contain them, and then um, let them compost slowly over the winter. And it uh, it heats the the greenhouse and provides bottom heat for flats of seedlings. This was actually pioneered by uh, Prince, now I guess King Charles, uh, in his uh, farm uh-huh. uh, organic research center uh-huh. over there, uh-huh. and so they. That that seemed like um, a pretty pretty timely thing to uh, <laughs> for us to yeah. to learn about. the The only thing that I was a little discouraged about with that with with uh, reading about wood chips is um, they're always concentrating on broadleafed trees, oh, which right. I mean now we do have a lot of oaks down in the county, but typically. What we have is fir branches and so on, and those are a little harder to use. Although I do use them for my chickens' bedding. 
Uh. And I find that actually the all those aromatic compounds that you don't want so much in the garden are kind of nice for the chickens because I think they help prevent lice and whatnot. Uh huh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We are we are coming to the end of the hour, um, so I think we need to wrap up. Um, you've been listening to the Farm and Garden Show with Sarah Grusky and Michael Foley, and we've been talking with Jamie Chevalier of Quail Seeds. Jamie, where can listeners find out more, read your advice on seeds, gardening, and cooking? I know you've had a periodic column in the Willits Weekly, but I know your website is full of, full of all kinds of wonderful things besides just the seed sales. Yeah, I've, I've, um, I've got uh, both a, a, well, the website has uh, how-to pages and as well as blog posts, so you can kind of separate out the the just step by step instruction kind of stuff from the um, opinion kind of stuff or the more <laughs> <laughs> the more nebulous stuff. Um, and that's yeah, quailseeds.com. Quailseeds.com. Yeah, and I know there's a great um, great instructions there for making fermented hot sauces. We, we, yeah. We oh, that's that. right. There's a recipe section too, but yep. that's yeah, that's in the drop-down menu. So. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay, so we'd like to thank Alicia Bales for being our engineer today and holding our hands at our first uh, take on the Farm and Garden Show or retake on it, and of course, thanks to Jamie Chevalier for being our guest today and providing us with all kinds of history and advice. <laughs> And uh, tune in next week to Elizabeth Archer for the next segment of the Farm and Garden Show. And thanks to all of you, our listeners. And if you missed part of the show or just want to listen again, you can find this show and all of KZYX's fine programming on KZYX Jukebox. The Farm and Garden Show can be heard the first and third Thursdays of the month from 3 to 4 p.m with Elizabeth Archer as host, Sarah and I host the Farm and Garden Show the fourth Thursday of the month. We'll be back December 22nd with a special program on farmer's markets. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.